For many things in life, it takes time and effort before you can see meaningful improvement. But luckily for us, eating better is easy with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every meal from Factor is fresh, never frozen, and is chef-crafted and ready to go in just two minutes. There are over 35 different options to choose from every week, and it doesn't just stop at lunch or dinner, they also have a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Truly every meal I've had from Factor has been delicious, but most importantly for me, it's beyond easy with no cooking or prep and especially no cleanup. Plus Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved, so I'm saving money and eating healthier even on the days when I don't feel like cooking. If you'd like to get started today and get after your goals, head to factormeals.com lightspeed50 and use code lightspeed50 to get 50% off. That's code LIGHTSPEED50 at factormeals.com slash LIGHTSPEED50 to get 50% off. Who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Lightspeed. Hi, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, John Joseph Adams. Our story this week is How to Become a Mars Overlord by Catherine M. Valenti. It's read for you by Robin Sachs. Born in the Pacific Northwest in 1979, Miss Valenti is the author of more than a dozen works of fiction and poetry, including Palimpsest, the Orphan's Tale series, and the crowdfunded phenomenon, The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland in a Ship of Her Own Making. She is the winner of the Tiptree Award, the Mythopaic Award, the Risling Award, and the Million Writers Award. She was a finalist for the World Fantasy Award in 2007 and 2009, and the Lambda, Andre Norton, and Hugo Awards in 2010. She lives on an island off the coast of Maine with her partner, two dogs, and an enormous cat. Learn more at CatherineMvalenti.com. Before we get to the story, here's a brief introduction by the author. Hi, this is Catherine Valenti, and I'm introducing my story, How to Become a Mars Overlord, in Lightspeed Magazine. The origin of this story is basically, I married a science fiction fan. My husband has for some years been making references to Mars overlorddom as kind of metaphor for self-actualization in his own life, but also literally being a Mars overlord because that's an inherently awesome thing. Uh, being the magpie of ideas I am, I thought there was a story there. There was something uh, bigger there that I could latch onto because Mars is such a 
focus is such a iconic image of, of old school science fiction and what we once thought the universe would be like when, when we got out there um, with Bradbury and Heinlein and, and a lot of other writers. I think only the moon is uh, similar in, in iconic value to science fiction. And the story itself is in microcosm a future history of Mars, uh, a Mars that we might have once hoped would be, that we know cannot be anymore, but uh, can still sort of exist in the realms of science fiction. It has only ever existed in science fiction and can only ever continue in science fiction. It is a universe and a world contained completely within uh, science fiction itself. And so is this Mars is kind of science fiction's love child. There are, of course, other planets in the story, planets which are Mars but not Mars, the idea being that every solar system contains a kind of Mars analog. I really like this idea that the universe is sort of narratively unified, that it rhymes or repeats itself the same way a poem does. But the story is also about life on Earth and what Mars really means, what Mars, uh, what Mars is to each and every one of us, which is kind of a bizarre uh, sort of come-to-Jesus sort of thing to say, uh, what Mars means to each and every one of us. But at the same time, something cannot be iconic without meaning something different to everybody. And within the confines of the story, not only is Mars a planet and a story and a character, but Mars is us. I am Mars and you are Mars and we are all Mars together. And to be an overlord of that is to be in control of one's own soul. But at the same time, the story really is about what is domination, what is, to, what is it to be dominated? Uh, and are these attractive things, are these desirable things, or is there something unpleasant at the core of that, uh, of that desire in humans? The story really is a love poem to that alternate Mars, the Mars of the mind, much as my story, The Radiant Car Thy Sparrows Drew, that I wrote last year for Clark's World, was about an alternate Venus. This is about that Mars that only ever existed, that we know now can only ever exist in fiction dreamed of in reality for an awfully long time. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, thanks Kat. I hope you enjoy the story, and if you do, I hope you'll go to our website at lightspeedmagazine.com and leave a comment. Just click on fiction, find this story, and then leave a comment there. Or, if you'd like to help spread the word, go to iTunes, find the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast, and leave a review or rating there. Well, that about does it for this week's intro, so without further ado, let's make the jump to Lightspeed. How to Become a Mars Overlord by Catherine M. Valente Welcome, aspiring potentates. We are tremendously gratified at your interest in our little red project and pleased that you recognize the potential growth opportunities inherent in whole planet domination. Of course, we remain humble in the face of such august and powerful interests and seek only to showcase the unique and challenging career paths currently available on the highly desirable, iconic, and oxygen-rich landscape of Mars. Query. Why Mars? It is a little-known fact that every solar system contains Mars. Not Mars itself, of course, but certain suns seem to possess what we might call a habit of Martianness. 
In every inhabited system so far identified, there is a red planet, usually near enough to the most populous world, if not as closely adjacent as our own twinkling scarlet beacon, with proximate lengths of day and night. Even more curious, these planets are without fail named for war divinities. In the far-off lighthouse system, the orb Makar turns slowly in the dark, red as the blood of that fell goddess to whom cruel strategists pray, she who nurses two skulls at each mammoth breast. In the glyph system, closer to home, it is the Firiali glittering there like a ripe red fruit, called after a god of doomed charges, depicted in several valuable tapestries as a jester dancing ever on the tip of a sword, clutching in each of his seven hands a bouquet of whelk muskets, bones, and promotions with golden seals. In the Birabira system, still yet we may walk the carnelian sands of Upskill, the officer's patron goddess, with her woolly dactyl wings weighted down with gorsuskite medals gleaming purple and white. Around her orbit, Widskill and Nagskill, the enlisted man's god and the pilot's mad, bald angel, soaring pale as twin ghosts through Upskill's emerald-coloured sky. Each red planet owns also two moons, just as ours does. Some of them will suffer life to flourish. We have ourselves vacationed on the several crystal ponds of Volney and Vernost, which attend the claret equatorial jungles of Rauder, named, of course, for the four-faced lord of bad intelligence, whose exploits have been collected in the glassily perfect septameters of the Raudrian Eddas. We have flown the lonely black between the satellites on slim-finned ferries, decked in green-glow blossoms, sacred to the poorly informed divine personage. But most moons are kin to Phobos and Deimos, and rotate silently, empty, barren, bright stones, mute and heavy. Many a time we have asked ourselves, does Mars dwell in a house of mirrors, that same red face repeated over and over in the distance, a quantum hiccup, or is Mars the master, the exemplum, and all the rest copies? Surely the others ask the same riddle. We would all like to claim the primacy of our own specimen, and frequently do, which led to the Astronomers' War some years ago, and truly no one here can bear to recite that tragic narrative, or else we should wash you all away with our rust-stained tears. The advantages of these many Marses, scattered like ruby seeds across the known darkness, are clear. In almost every system, Due to stellar circumstances beyond mortal control, Mars or Iskra or Lial is the first best candidate for occupation by the primary world. In every system, the late pre-colonial literature of those primary worlds becomes obsessed with that tantalizing rose-colored neighbor. Surely some of you are here because your young hearts were fired by the bedside tales of Alim Kay, her passionate affair with the two Piscine princes of Red Nisau, and how she waked dread machines in the deep rills of the Knesset mountains in order to possess them. 
Who among us never read of the mariner Ubaido and his silver-keeled ship exploring the fell canals of Mikto, their black water filled with Ely leviathans whose eyes shone with clusters of green pearls? All your mothers read the ballads of Solohul to each of you in your cribs, and your infant dreams were filled with gorgeous green six-legged cricket queens ululating on the broad pink plains of Potnebesia, their carapaces awash in light. And who did not love Illa, her strange longings against those bronze spires? Who did not thrill to hear of those scarlet worlds bent to a single will? Who did not feel something stir within them, confronted with those endless crimson sands? We have all wanted Mars in our time. She is familiar. She is strange. She is redolent of tales and spices and stones we have never known. She is demure and gives nothing freely. But from our hearths we have watched her glitter all of our lives. Of course we want her. Mars is the girl next door. Her desirability is encoded in yourselves. It is archetypal. We absolve you in advance. No matter what system bore you, lifted you up, made you strong and righteous, there is a Mars for you to rule, and it is right that you should wish to rule her. These are perhaps the only certainties granted to a soul like yours. We invite you, therefore, to commit to memory our simple two-step system to accomplish your laudable goals, for obviously no paper, digital, or flash materials ought to be taken away from this meeting. Step 1. Get to Mars. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a poor man to get to Mars. However, to be born on a bed of gems leads to a certain laziness of the soul, a kind of muscular weakness of the ambition, a subtle sprain in the noble faculties. Not an original observation, but repetition proves the axiom. Better to excel in some other field, for the well-rounded overlord is a blessing to all. Perhaps micro-cloning or kinetic engineering. If you must, write a novel, but only before you depart, for novels written in the post-despotic utopia you hope to create may be beloved, but will never be taken seriously by the literati. Take as your exemplum the post-plastic retroviral architect Helix Foe. The Chilean Wunderkind was born with ambition in his mouth, and literally stole his education from an upper-class boy he happened upon in a dark alley. In exchange for his life, the patriarch agreed to turn over all his books and assignments upon completion so that Foe could shadow his university years. For his senior project, Foe locked his erstwhile benefactor in a basement and devoted himself wholly to the construction of the para-influenza opera house in Santiago, whose translucent spires even now dominate that skyline. The wealthy graduate went on to menial labor in the doctoral factories, much chagrined, while young foe swam in wealth and fame, enough to purchase three marriage rights, including one to an aquatic vercoid androgene with an extremely respectable feather ridge. 
By his 40th birthday, Foe had also purchased, through various companies, the better part of the Atlantic Ocean, whereupon he began breeding the bacterial island which so generously hosts us tonight, and supplies our salads with such exquisite Yersinia radishes. Since, nearly all interplanetary conveyances have launched from Foe's RNA platform, for he charged no tariffs but his own passage, in comfort and grace. You will, of course, remember Foe as the first All-Emperor of Mars, and his statue remains upon the broad Athabasca Valors. Or, rather, model yourself upon the poetess Urm 19.01 of Moore, who set the glittering world of Moore letters to furious clicking and torsioning of vocabulary bladders. You and I may be quite sure there is no lucre at all to be made in the practice of poetry, but the half-butterfly giants of Moore are hardwired for rhyming structures. They cannot help but speak in couplets, sing their simplest greetings in six-part contratenor harmonies. Moore wars exist only between the chosen bards of each country, who spend years in competitive recitings to settle issues of territory. Orm 19, her lacy wings shot through with black neural braiding, revolted and became a mistress of free verse. Born in the nectar soup of the capital pool, she carefully collected words with no natural rhymes like dewdrops, hoarding, categorizing, and collating them. As a child, she haunted the berry-dripping speakeasies where the great luminaries read their latest work. At the age of sixteen, barely past infancy in the long stage shifts of a Moreau, she delivered her first poem, which consisted of two words. Bright. Cellar. Of course, in English these have many rhymes, but in Moreau they have none, and her poem may as well have been a bomb detonated on the blue floor of that famous nightclub. Orm 19 found the secret, unrhyming world hiding within the delicate, gorgeous structures of Moreau, and dragged it out to shine in the sun. But she was not satisfied with fame, nor with her mates and grubs and sweet-water gems. That is how it goes with those of us who answer the call. Alone in a ship of unrhymed glass, she left Moor entirely, and within a year took the red diadem of Etel for her own. Each rival she assassinated died in bliss as she whispered her verses into their perishing ears. It is true that Harlow Y, scion of the House of Y, ruled the red planet Hlim for some time. However, all may admit his rule frayed and frolicked in poor measure, and we have confidence that no one here possesses the makings of a Y hidden away in her jumpsuit. Dominion of the House of Y passed along genetic lines, though this method is degenerate by definition and illegal in most systems. By the time Harlow ascended, generations of Y had been consumed by little more than fashion, public nudity, and the occasional religious fad. What species Y may have belonged to before their massive wealth, derived from mining ore and cosmetics, if the earliest fairy tales of Vit are to be believed, 
allowed constant and enthusiastic gene manipulation, voluntary mutation, prostheses, and virtual uplink, no one can truly say. Upon the warm golden sea of Viet, you are house why, or you are prey, and they have forcibly self-evolved out of recognizability. Harlow himself appears in a third of his royal portraits, something like a massive winged koala with extremely long ultraviolet eyelashes and a crystalline torso. Harlow Y inherited majority control over Klim as a child and administered it much as a child will do, mining and farming for his amusement and personal augmentation. Each of his ultraviolet lashes represented thousands of dead Klimi, crushed to death in avalanches in the mine shafts of the Ipo Mountains. But though Harlow achieved overlordship with alacrity and great speed, he ended in assassination, his morning hash tea and bamboon spectacularly poisoned by the general and unanimous vote of the populace. Mastery of Mars is not without its little lessons. It is surely possible to be born on a red planet, the Infanza of Hap lived all her life in the ruby jungles of her homeworld. She was the greatest actress of her age. Her tales could convey the colors of a hundred complex emotions in a shimmering fall of shades. So deft were her illusions that the wicked old Ray thought her loyal and gentle beyond words, even as she sunk her bladed fingers into his belly. But we must assume that if you require our guidance, you did not have the luck of a two-tailed infanza and were born on some other, meaner world with black soil or blue storms or sweet rain falling like ambition denied. Should you be so unfortunate as to originate upon a planet without copious travel options, due to economic crisis, ideological roadblocks, or simply occupying a lamentably primitive place on the technological timeline, have no fear. You are not alone in this. We suggest cryonics. The severed head of Plasticine Bly ruled successfully over the equine hemovores of AOM for a century. He gambled, and gambled hard, he had his brain preserved at the age of twenty, hoping against hope that the ice might deliver him into a world more ready for his rarefied soul. Should you visit AOM, the great wall of statues bearing her face, the sculptors kindly gave her a horse body, will speak to what may be grasped when the house pays out. If cryonics is for some reason unpopular on your world, longevity research will be your bosom friend. Invest in it. Nurture it. Only you can be the steward of your own immortality. Even on Earth, Sarai Norte, third Emira of Valles Marineris, managed to outlive her great-grandchildren by funding six separate think tanks and an Australian diamond mine, until one underpaid intern presented her upon her birthday with a cascade of injections sparkling like champagne. But on some worlds, in some terrible, dark hours, there is no road to Mars, no matter how much the traveling soul might desire it. In patchwork shoes, staring up at a starry night, and one gleaming red star among the thousands, sometimes want is not enough.
Not enough for Maximilian Bauxbaum, a Jewish baker in Provence, who in his most secret evenings wrote poetry describing such strange blood-colored deserts, such dry canals, a sky like green silk. Down to his children and to theirs and theirs again, he passed a single ruby the size of an egg, the size of a world. The baker had been given it as a bribe by a Christian lord to take his leave of a certain maiden whom he loved, with hair the color of oxide-rich dust and eyes like the space between moons. Never think on her again. Never whisper her name to the walls. Though he kept his promise to an old and bitter death, such a treasure can never be spent, for it is as good as admitting your heart can be bought. Sarai Norte inherited that jewel and brought it with her to bury beneath the foundations of the Cathedral of Olympus Mons. In the end, you must choose a universe that contains yourself and Mars, together and perfect. Helix Vaux chose a world built by viruses as tame as songbirds. Orm 19 chose a world gone soft and violet with unrhyming songs. Make no mistake, every moment is a choice. A choice between this world and that one between heavens teeming with life and a lonely machine grinding across red stone, between staying at home with tea and raspberry cookies and ruling Mars with a hand like grace. Maximilian Bugsbaum chose to keep his promise. Who is to say it is not that promise instead of microbial soup which determined that Mars would be teeming with blue inhuman cities with seventeen native faiths by the time his child opened her veins to those terrible champagne elixirs and turned her eyes to the night. Step 2. Become an Overlord Now we come to the central question at the core of planetary domination. Just how is it done? The answer is a riddle. Of course, it would be. You must already be an overlord in order to become one. Ask yourself, what is an overlord? Is he a villain? Is she a hero? A cowboy, a priestess, an industrialist? Is he cruel? Is he kind? Does she rule like air, invisible, indispensable? Is she the first human on Mars, walking on a plane so incomprehensible and barren that she feels her heart empty? Does she scratch away the thin red dust and see the black rock beneath? Does he land in his sleek Piscine capsule on upskill, so crammed with libraries and granaries that he lives each night in an orgy of books and bread? What does she lord over? The land alone? The people? The belligerent patron gods with their null bronze greaves ablaze? Is it true, as Orm 19 wrote, that the core of each red world is a gem of blood compressed like carbon, a hideous war diamond that yearns toward the strength of a king or a queen as a compass yearns toward north? Or is this only a metaphor, a way in which you can anthropomorphize something so vast as a planet? Think of it 
as something capable of loving you back. It would seem that the very state of the overlord is one of violence, of domination. Uncomfortable colonial memories arise in the heart like acid. Everyone wants to be righteous. Everyone wishes to be loved. What is any pharaonic statue staring out at a sea of malachite foam but a plea of the pharaoh to be loved forever, unassailably, without argument? Ask yourself, will Mars be big enough to fill the hole in you, the one that howls with such winds, which says the only love sufficient to quiet those winds is the love of a planet, red in tooth, claw, orbit, mass. We spoke before of how to get to Mars if your lonely planet offers no speedy highway through the skies. Truthfully, and now we feel we can be truthful here in the long night of our seminar, when the clicking and clopping of the staff has dimmed and the last of the cane cream has been sopped up, when the stars have all come out and through the crystal ceiling we can all see one... Oh, so red, so red, just there, just out of reach. Truthfully, getting to Mars is icing. It is parsley. To be an overlord is to engage in mastery of a bright red thing. Reach out your hand. What in your life, confined to this poor grit, this lone blue world, could not also be called Mars? Rage, cruelty, the god of your passions, the terrible skills you possess, that forced obedience from a fiery engine, bellicose children, lines of perfect, gleaming code. These things, too, are Mars. They are named for fell gods. They spit on civilized governance. And they might, if whipped or begged, fill some nameless void that hamstrings your soul. Mars is everywhere. Every world is Mars. You cannot get there if you are not the lord and leader of your own awful chariot, if you are not the crowned paladin in the car, instead of the animal roped to it, frothing, mad, driven, but never understanding. We have said you must choose as Baugsbaum and Orm and Foe chose. To choose is to understand your own highest excellence, even if that is only to bake bread and keep promises. You must become great enough here that Mars will accept you. Some are chosen to this life. Mars itself is chosen to it, never once in all its iterations having been ruled by democracy. You may love Mars... But Mars loves a crown, a scepter, a horn-mooned diadem spangled in ice opals. This is how the bride of Mars must be dressed. Make no mistake, no matter your gender, you are the blushing innocent brought to the bed of a mate as ancient and inscrutable as any death's-head bridegroom out of myth. Did you think that the planet would bend to your will? That you would control it? Oh, it is a lovely word. Overlord. Emperor. Pharaoh. Princeps. But you will be changed by it as by a virus. 
Mars will fill your empty, abandoned places. But the greatest of them understood their place. The Overlord embraces the Red Planet, but in the end, Mars always triumphs. You will wake in your thousand-year reign to discover your hair gone red, your translucent skin covered in dust, your three hearts suddenly fused into a molten, stony core. You will cease to want food and seek out only cold, black air to drink. You will face the sun and turn slowly in circles for days on end. Your thoughts will slow and become grand. You will see as a planet sees, speak as it speaks, which is to say, the long view, the perfected sentence. And one morning you will wake up and your mouth will be covered over in stone, but the land beneath you, crimson as a promise, as a ruby, as an unrhymed couplet, as a virus, the land or the machine or the child or the book will speak with your voice and you will be an overlord and how proud we shall be of you here by the sea listening to the dawn break over a new shore. This has been a production of Lightspeed Magazine in association with Skyboat Road Company, Inc. To subscribe to this podcast, comment on this story, or read additional stories from Lightspeed Magazine, please visit lightspeedmagazine.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, Jenny, have you um, ever heard of a vampire slayer? Do you mean the one girl in all the world with the strength and skill to fight the vampires, demons, and forces of darkness? I do. Oh, yeah. I've heard of her. Cool. My name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together, we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Never seen Buffy before? We will protect you. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? <laughs> Your search is at an end, my friend, because we did exactly that. So if you've never watched Buffy or if you're about to watch the series for the 14th time, come over and join us. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at BufferingCast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.